The title of today's the title of today's message is Joy in Faith. Now some might ask, why are we doing a, a series on joy? We should be doing something building up towards Christmas. And we really, we, we are. Uh, we'll get into that as we go this morning, of course, because our faith is, for, is in Christ, right? And we're building up to what it means to have joy in Christ. And that'll be our Christmas morning uh, message. If I can today, I'm going to steal a little something from our friend Randy Ruiz. I'd like for you to look at the person next to you and tell them, my faith gives me joy. My faith gives me joy. Try again. My faith gives me joy. Awesome. <laughs> All right. We're going to begin reading <laughs> Why'd you do that, Ron? <laughs> Just broke everything. I've lost all concentration. That's okay. I'm kidding. All right. So Colossians chapter two, I almost said second Colossians, Ron. Thanks. Colossians chapter two, we're going to begin in verse six and it reads like this. Therefore, as you have, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him having been firmly rooted and being built up in him and having been established in your faith, just as you were instructed and abounding with thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world and not according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily and in him you have been filled who is the head over all rule and authority, in, in whom you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands and the removal of the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him, having graciously forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He also has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them in him. It's all right, I'm just going to pray again real quick. Father God, we just thank you. Thank you for your word and all that that means. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the good news that Christ died to redeem us. And we thank you that he didn't stay dead, that you raised him from the grave and that he's now ascended and at your right hand. Lord, we pray you are glorified through this message today. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, this message title is Our Joy in Faith. Now, if you're taking notes and you want to write this down, this is the one thing I hope that you take away this morning from all of this. Our faith, and all it entails, our faith connects us to the joy offered to us in Christ Jesus. I'll say that again. Our faith connects us to the joy offered to us in Christ we have this Christmas song that we sing this time of year. Joy to the world, the Lord. I'm sorry, I'll just, joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Now in faith, I'm gonna ask you something this morning. Do you believe the Lord has come? Yes. 
In faith, is he your king? And in faith, have you prepared him room in your heart this morning? Then you know the joy that we are to have. Amen? Amen. Joy to the world. Well, joy to those who understand this and, and accept this and believe this. Because if you have faith and have received him as your Lord and King, you know exactly the core, the true, the abundant joy that he offers you when you believe. Our faith connects us to the joy offered to us in Christ Jesus. We read back in verses 6 and 7 again. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and being built up in him, and having been established in your faith, just as you were instructed and abounding in thanksgiving. Now, any time in Scripture when we see that, that word therefore or some other connecting word, it forces us to have to look back and understand what the writer was getting at before he shifted gears or began to explain himself or began to illustrate what it is we're reading now. Now, what Paul has been doing through chapter 1 and the, and the first part of chapter 2 here is he has been encouraging the Colossian church and the Laodicean church. This is actually a letter to both the Colossi and Laodicean churches. In fact, another letter is going to go along with the Colossian letter to a man named Philemon. And we have a copy of that letter also in our Bibles. It's carried by a man named Erasmus. Erasmus was a former slave of Philemon's who had ran into Paul and had become a believer in Jesus Christ. And so Paul is going to write to Philemon as well and say, you need to hash it out with your brother. Because there was some bitterness there, and it was, it was robbing Philemon of his joy. And it was also, knowing that he was under that, it was likely robbing Onesimus, whose name means useful, uh, was robbing him as well. So all of those things combined, and we get this letter to the Colossians. And Paul is writing to the Laodiceans and the Colossians because he wants to strengthen, he wants to fortify their faith. He wants them to understand the truth and where their faith belongs and what it truly means and what it truly should be pushing them, growing them towards. And so we see this. And Paul writes to them. He says, therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus, the Lord. When he says Lord, it's the Greek word kurios, and it means master. You've received if you've got faith in Jesus Christ and you've received him as your master, the correlating word in Greek is doulos, a slave. It often gets translated servant or bondservant. You've all heard me talk about this before, that if he's your master, then you, you are his servant. You are his slave. You are indebted to him. He's paid a debt you couldn't, and now you've come under him, and he is a good master. You've exchanged the master of sin for the master called Christ. And we saw the evils of slavery quite a bit. We looked at that last week. We looked at John Newton and amazing grace and all of that. The key point to the Greco-Roman idea and the Hebrew idea of slavery was you had to have, for it to work and work right and work well, you had to have a good master. And Christ is that good master for us. He has become the master of the Colossian and Laodicean Christians. And that meant they're no longer a slave to their former lives. They're no longer a slave to their former lust, their flesh, their, their pagan religions were done. 
He is their master now. He's the captain of their ship. And since Jesus is their master, Paul says you have to walk in him. By walk, what he means is you conduct yourselves in him. You live in him. You move forward in Christ. You see, when, when we look at the, the, we call it the journey, the spiritual journey that a Christian is on, it is a race, it is a walk, it is a lifestyle, but it is always a progression forward for the Christian. We're not to go back to the pagan life. We're not to go back to the way we were as unbelievers. We see a similar idea like this in 3 John verse 3. He says, For I rejoice greatly when brothers came and bore witness to your truth, that is, how you are walking in truth. They were growing. They were progressing in what is truth. In essence, what Paul is getting at here in Colossians is that the Christian life continues as it began in Christ. You are walking in him because you started walking in him. Now we contrast that, that sort of lifestyle with those who got it wrong, like the Galatian churches. Uh, Paul says, I marvel to them. He said, I marvel that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Well, if the, I started to say Galatian Christians, that's, you know, as snowy weather's coming, right? If Colossians is what. Galatian Christians, if they got it wrong, then Paul owes it to us as readers to show us what it looks like when somebody gets it right. Or at least what he expects of the the Christian who does get it right. And he does this. He says in Romans 12, he says, I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God. That is your spiritual service of worship. That's what a Christian life that is right should look like. He tells the Ephesian Christians, therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And later, even in Colossians 3, verse 17, he's going to say, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That is what a maturing Christian life should look like. Having done all of that, having faithfully set our pace as we walk, Paul says, having been firmly rooted, that's in faith in Christ, being built up in faith in Christ, to be rooted means we have a foundation, right? If we're rooted, then we have a strong, deep, because roots go deep, foundation, and we are being built up, that's present tense, that means it's a continual process in our lives, Because that's insinuating we're growing, we're progressing, we're walking, we're moving forward. We see this fleshed out further in Ephesians 4.13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the full knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the status which belongs to the fullness of Christ. He's talking about a maturing process in our faith, a growing progression So having made Christ our Lord, walking in him, being rooted in him, growing in him, and having been established in our faith, this word established, it means we are confirmed in it. We are sustained in it. 
We are immovable in it. Nothing is going to shake us or stir us in our faith. It is a mature faith that stands when others say, I can't do this anymore. It's an immature faith that wants the, uh, the valleys and the, the mountaintops, always seeking the mountaintop. No, a mature faith says, doesn't matter if I'm in the valley or on the mountain, Christ is still my king. Amen? We understand what I'm saying? Our faith is not to be easily shaken. It must remain. It has to be steadfast. That's what being established means. And yet we have to look at what faith itself truly is. Now, many of you have heard me say it's the, it's the Greek word pistis, which basically means it's a belief that trusts or a trusting belief. But what does that look like? How do we define that through the scope of Scripture? What does that truly all entail? There are actually, if you, if you really get into this, and we want to examine our faith, and it doesn't matter if you, you think you have a, a simple faith, you can still have a strong, deep faith. And that's what this is. When you have faith in Christ, you have one of the dimensions is a covenantal aspect of your faith. You have entered into an agreement with God. He said, I'll send my son and die for you. And you said, yes, please. You said, I will follow you, Jesus. I will take up my cross daily and I will follow after you if you'll give me eternal life. Right? There's a deal we've got with God. You wipe away my sin and I'll live my life for you as best I can. Right? In a sense, we do this. Okay, so that is the covenantal aspect of your faith. And we see this in Scripture. We see Abraham do this. Abraham believed in the Lord, and he, can, he counted it to him as righteousness. Joshua tells the whole nation of Israel, Fear the Lord and serve him in integrity and truth, and put away the gods which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve Yahweh. We are to do this as part of our end of the deal. It's our, co our covenant with him. We see this in the lives of the disciples. When Jesus comes along and he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. What part do they have to do? Follow him. Get out of the boat. When they set foot on land, when they brought in their nets and they began to follow Jesus, they entered into a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. But we also have what's called an epistemological aspect of our faith. That's a fun theological word. People get mixed up on that. Epistemology is what separates truth from opinion. Epistemology is what separates facts from feelings. When we have an epistemological aspect of our faith, it is based on evidence that we have seen. Now, we know there is an historical Jesus, right? Even secular people like Bart Ehrman, who tries to refute the Gospels, he will acknowledge the fact that there is an historical Jesus of Nazareth who changed the world. There's evidence of him. But there's more to that with the Christian. With the Christian, we know the evidence we've seen in our own lives. I'm not the same person I used to be anymore. I know that God has answered prayers of mine. I know that God has came in and taken a, a sinful wretch and made him completely different. I know that God has healed my child. I know that God has done these different, and the list goes on, things in my life. That is evidence of him. I know his word. 
I know he's written to me to tell me how I should live and shape my life and so on and so forth. That's the epistemological dimension. Now, there are some Christians who will push back against that and they'll say, they'll quote the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith and not by sight. And I want to tell you something this morning that makes for a very cute coffee cup, but that is not good theology. They are taking that passage and twisting it and using it out of context. If you read in 2 Corinthians, what Paul is saying is that we are suffering. He's talking about suffering. And he says to be apart from the body is to be present with Christ. And so that when we are suffering, we suffer through faith, not through earthly goggles, not through fleshly thoughts. In other words, when the Christian looks at the world, we see the world through the biblical lens, through the Christ lens. We don't look at it through a worldly lens. Do you, do you follow what I'm saying? Okay. John Lennox, he's a professor at Oxford. He said it this way. I'm going to paraphrase because he's a lot smarter than me and it took me a while to understand it. And I, maybe you're better than me, but this is the easiest way for me to remember it. He says the world will look at the bottom of a piston and say, well, I don't see God here. But the Christian steps back and looks at the entire engine and says, how do you not see the great mechanic's fingerprints all upon this, mag- this amazing machine? How do you not see that? You see, we look at the world through the lens of Scripture, through the lens of Christ. The world looks at the world through the lens of the world, and that's why they're lost. It's this dimension of our faith that allows the Christian to have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and all the rest in a world that is filled with chaos and hate and anger and confusion and all the things that do not glorify God. We understand the whole picture through the realm or through the the lens of, of Christ. You see, we understand that faith has corrupted the world, but we have, I'm sorry, that sin has corrupted the world, but we have faith that Christ will return one day. That's our eschatological aspect of our faith, that that there is hope coming. We talked about that at the very beginning of this series. We wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and make manifest the motives of hearts. We wait for that in faith. That is the final and third aspect of our faith. This hoping, this waiting that God is going to do something. God is going to change the world. God is going to make things right eventually. These three dimensions, they make up the whole of your faith. The facts, the, the covenant, and the the hope that we have that he's going to come and, and settle it all right. And that's how we live for him. That's how we trust in him. We have that believing trust in who he is. It's through these aspects of our faith we f- truly begin to find our joy in him. The Latin phrase we hear often is sola fide, faith alone. It's by his grace alone we put our faith alone in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Paul goes on, he says, just as you were instructed and already abounding with thanksgiving. We just celebrated Thanksgiving, it seems like yesterday, right? A few weeks ago. What is thanksgiving but joyfulness in having received? That's what thanksgiving truly is. You say thank you because you're grateful. You say thank you because what was given was something that brings you joy, right? Or you're just saying it to be polite, which is different, but 
Having reminded them of their faith, having said all of this to the Colossians, their source of joy, Paul begins to warn them. He shifts gears in verse 8. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, and not according to Christ. This is kind of deep. Some translations, I think it's the original King James, says, see to it no one spoils you. The new King James says, see, no, see that no one cheats you. Whatever the translation, something bad is going to happen, right? Inevitably, in your Christian walk, somebody's going to come along and they're going to try and steer you off the path that you've been walking. And they're either someone who loves you and loves Jesus and they're going to try and get you on the right path because you've been walking in the wrong way or you've been walking in the right way and they're going to come along and try and steer you off of the right path, that narrow road. The idea, you might even read this and in meditating might even get the idea of of a kidnapping. That someone's going to come along and take you and you wouldn't be far off from that. Wherever they're taking you, it's not somebody good. The illusion here, if, if we're to understand this, is we are now under Christ who is our Lord. He is our master. We are under him and someone wants to kidnap his slave. Someone wants to come along and take what belongs to Christ now. And deter you and and not just necessarily kidnap, but get you to leave on your own. And we see this happening in the Colossian churches. We see this happening in the church now. What does this? Well, Paul tells us philosophy. By the way, it's the two Greek words, phylos, which means friendly, and sophos, wisdom. In other words, somebody who comes along and wants to be your friend and be friendly and offer you what would seem to be wisdom. So that's why I say watch out for those preachers that are all those, oh, shucks type of guys. They seem real friendly. They seem to have wisdom, but weigh their words very carefully. Watch what they say. Empty deceptions. This is actually empty-handed deceitfulness. This is charlatans. These are people, snake oil salesmen, who, who claim to do miraculous things or do these special tricks, and they're not really. Things that are traditions of men. These are the things, these are pharisaical things. Jesus dealt with these things. When it came to the law, there were traditions of men around the law that they'd put in. Things that are not scripture, but these are the, this is the way it should be though because this is the way we've always done it type of thing, right? Or I've always heard this is true, so I believe it even though it has no principle, no, no uh, sorry, not principle, no foundation in scripture. The elementary principles of the world. This is referring to other deities, uh, which are demons and they're not according to Christ. These are the things that sway us. Now this has become tied to what in church history has become known as the Colossian heresy. There's no indication in the book, in the letter to the Colossians that they have succumbed to this, but Paul is warning them. He's saying, be very careful because eventually this is something that's going to try and sneak in and has, we see in Galatians, has snuck in to other churches. He's warning them. And he makes, a, we're not sure exactly what Paul thought might come in, but notice that throughout the entire letter, he refers to the fact that Christ died physically for them. And Colossians 1.22 specifically, he says, he reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless. 
blameless and beyond reproach. Paul makes a big deal about the physical aspect of Christ and what was in the physical aspect of Christ, which we get into in the next verse. Now, there was teaching around this time in some what's called the Gnostics or the Mystics, people who were coming around, they were saying Jesus was not a physical being. They, they take that idea of, and we talked about this a little bit in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus was walking on the water and they thought that he was a phantom, they would take that out of context. Now, Jesus clearly says, no, guys, it's me. I'm here, right? You all know the story now. But they would say, well, see, clearly he was a phantom. And they wouldn't finish out the context. Context matters. And so they would teach that Jesus was just a spirit. No, Paul says, no, he had a physical body. And others would teach, well, when he was resurrected, he was only resurrected in spirit. We know that's not true. He said, touch my hands, Thomas, right? Feel the hole in my side, Thomas. You can't do that with a ghost or an apparition. So we know this, and Paul emphasizes this whole idea. There was this attack on who Christ was and what he had done. Now, here's the sad thing about the early church. They didn't have the Bible like you have and I have. Their pastors were likely discipled at the same time that everybody else was being discipled. And he was just a guy who stepped up and began to study things a little more with whatever resources the apostles had left him when they left town. And he wasn't that much far ahead of anybody else. They didn't have any proper Bible colleges or any way to instruct anybody back then. So they're all kind of on equal ground. And so Paul writes to them and he's saying, beware teaching that is man-made, that is extra biblical, that, that has no foundation in truth, that has no foundation in the word that we preach to you. In fact, he actually says to the Galatians, if someone comes along and preaches a different gospel, that person should be condemned. We see similar wording, warning about this stuff in 2 Timothy. He says, For among them are those who enter into households and take captive weak women. And he's talking about their faith. They are weak in their faith. And they're weighed down with sins, being led by various desires. He goes on. Paul says, For the time will come when they, and he's talking about the whole church, he's telling Timothy, will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Paul does not want the Colossian church to fall into that. He wants them to be very aware. So he's fortifying their faith. He's encouraging them. He's saying, be vigilant. Be on the lookout. Because if you don't, something will come along and deceive you and you're going to exchange the joy of your faith for a false joy, a cheap joy, an emotional moment, something that's not going to last you. But your faith should keep you steadfast, unshakable, consistent. And if we've received Christ as our Lord and Master, we have to see that we're not deceived, that we're not led astray. Amen? We don't want to exchange our joy for something else because our faith connects us to the joy offered to us in Christ Jesus. We go on in verse 9. He says, For in him all, everybody, I don't like doing this, but I'm going to do it this morning. Everybody say all. all. Okay, really loud this time. All. There we go. All right. In him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Didn't throw me off that time. I was ready for it. <laughs> All the fullness of deity 
dwelt. Now, I want to spend a few minutes on this passage because even though it's very short, this is a very, very, very important passage in all the letter to the Colossians. In the near future, in your life, if you are someone who talks about your faith with other people, if you are someone who shares what you believe with other people, you're going to run into somebody who doesn't believe this. You're going to run into someone maybe like the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons or someone who does not believe all the fullness of deity dwelt in the body of Jesus Christ. That's just the facts. It may be someone who believes, like I said, like the Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons. Or, and it's my job as your pastor to equip you for those kinds of encounters. That's what Ephesians 4 says, that I am to equip the saints as a pastor. And now I can coach you on what to say. I can tell you, having had experience debating Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons myself, I can tell you what they're likely going to say. But you know the most effective tool I can give you in your toolbox for that moment is the truth of Scripture. And every week I try to give you the truth of Scripture, but especially on something like this, this is an apologetic or a responding uh, method or thing to keep in your toolbox. Take this home and unpack all this for yourself if you'd like. But the fact is the truth of Christ, the fullness of the deity of, of the Christ and the cross are often under attack by those outside the faith. Why? Because if the cross can be robbed of its value and the truth of Jesus can be taken down just a peg, then what we believe becomes less meaningful. It attacks your faith. We can be led astray. It's an empty deception. It's a man-made tradition or some other thing that tries to lower who Christ is. And what's one of the oldest tricks of the devil? Lower God, elevate man. And we see this happening. We often exchange the truth, the true joy of Christ, the joy from a true faith for a cheaper one, for a lesser one, for a false gospel or a false narrative that is no good news at all. There are those who will take a, a, a misreading of Colossians chapter 2 and they will try to say that Jesus was just a man that he was not fully God, that he was not fully a deity. But Paul is very clear. We're going to read this this morning. If you have your Bible, real quick, turn to Philippians chapter 2. I want you to follow along with this this morning. I'm going to go ahead and start reading if you, if you haven't found it yet. I know it's just a few pages back. but Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, and really a better understanding of that is he humbled himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, when we read that, we understand two things Paul is truly trying to get across to us. The first one is simply this. A Christian should humble themselves and love others more than they love themselves. Do we agree? Yeah? That's, that's what it basically says, right? And the second point is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity came in the appearance or form of a man. He took on a physical body, right? 
They laid him in a manger as a baby, and from that point, he began to grow, right? He stepped out of heaven, put on flesh and blood. He walked the earth. He emptied himself. Now, Paul is not saying that he denies his divinity, that he gave up his power or anything of that sort. In fact, as we walk through the gospel of Mark this past year, hopefully you've seen, and I've, I've displayed to you satisfactorily, that Jesus, on more than one occasion, proves that he is God Almighty in human flesh. Jesus did not perform, and I want to say this clearly, he did not perform his miracles as a mere man. Jesus did not calm the storm because he had the right amount of faith. Jesus had the fullness, the Greek word Paul uses pleroma, it means the completeness of the deity in his physical body. When Paul says what he says here, he is not, and I want to be very crystal clear on this, he is not saying that only the resurrected Christ or only the ascended Christ had the fullness of the deity in his body. Paul is very clear here. In uh, chapter 1 of Colossians, he speaks of the body which was sufficient for sacrifice for our sins. He says, but now he reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Do you understand that if Jesus of Nazareth was just a man who died on a cross... If he died as a man of faith for your salvation, it means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. Men of faith die every day. To say that Jesus was just a man of faith lessens the cross. It lessens the gospel. It cheapens what we believe in faith. To say that anything less than God shed his blood for us on Calvary's cross negates your salvation. Do you understand that this morning? It is only the blood of Jesus, it is only the blood of God himself that could atone for our sins. It's not the blood of a man that matters, it's the blood of God that washed our sins away. Later in our passages in verses 11 and 12, Paul is going to speak very specifically of the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, the physical body. It's not the body of a God, but the body of the God that was sacrificed as a propitiation for our sins and raised on that third day. Later in chapter 3, Paul will say, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He's pointing to the fact that the fullness of deity resides in the body of Christ from the manger to the ascension. That he is right there, always has been, always is, always will be God. To try and make Jesus anything less, that he's a, a, the, Michael Arch, uh, the archangel Michael, like Jehovah's Witnesses do, it cheapens your salvation. To say that he is a spirit brother to Lucifer, like the Mormons teach, it cheapens your salvation. To say that he's just a man with faith, and therefore I can do the things Jesus did if I have enough faith, as certain blasphemers do, that cheapens your salvation. Understand this this morning. When we get past all the theological jargon, all the big words, hypostatic union, Pastor Calvin likes to say that, 
the God-man, all the theories and all the big terms. The truth is simply this. God, the Trinity, the triune God, loved his creation so much in spite of their sin, in spite of their rebellion, that the second person of that Trinity, God the Son, took on the form of an infant and was laid in a manger 2,000 years ago and from that point began to walk a bloody path towards a bloody cross where two planks of wood waited for him and his hands and feet would be nailed there. He would die as an atonement for all the wrongs you have done and all the wrongs done to you. And we call his name Jesus. And we paint pictures and we tell the stories and we we have these movies that have a lot of artistic license in them. And we have this idea of who he is in our head, but church, he is so much greater than you or I could ever understand. Don't let anyone ever cheapen that for you. So why go through all of this? Why does this matter, Pastor Jeff? Why? Because it mattered to Paul. And it mattered to the church then. It should matter to the church now. And he goes on. He says, like I quoted earlier, Galatians 1.8, if we or any angel even from heaven should come to you and proclaim a gospel contrary to the gospel we proclaim to you, let him be accursed. It cheapens it. It is a deception. And it comes packaged so nice and neat. And Mormons are some of the friendliest people I've ever met in my life. And Jehovah's Witnesses are some of the most loving people I've ever met in my entire life. And so people will buy it. And they'll eat it up and they'll eventually begin to lower God and elevate man. And that is a man-made gospel. It is no gospel at all. But if we know the truth, if our faith is in Christ, Paul says, in him you have been filled, who is the head over all rule and authority, in whom you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands and the removal of the body of the flesh and the circumcision of Christ. Because of who Jesus is, because of his fullness, those who are in him are made complete. You understand, you are made whole in Christ Jesus. We find our joy in him because we find our fulfillment in him through faith. One reformer said, those who do not rest satisfied with Christ alone do injury to God in two ways. For besides distracting from the glory of God by desiring something above his perfection, they are also ungrateful inasmuch as they seek elsewhere what they already have in Christ. In other words, we are meant to find our fullness in Jesus. Our faith connects us to him. And because of that faith, we find our joy in Christ. And as he's the head over all, all the authority is his. Paul again emphasizes his divine nature, who this Christ, the Greek is Christos, who he is. In him we are also circumcised. Now this is obviously referring back to the Abrahamic covenant, which we see in Genesis 17. But Paul says this, this that he's talking about in the New Testament, this is a circumcision done without hands. This is a circumcision of the heart. Now if you've studied Romans, you've likely heard this before, but we are grafted into that Abrahamic covenant. We are brought into that through Christ. Every young Jewish man, this is not news to anybody here, I don't believe, but every young Jewish man would be circumcised to show as an outward sign in his physical body they were men of faith. But in Christ, it is something that happens inwardly and should show outwardly so that our physical body doesn't have to be cut on or or changed. 
The Christian is brought in as a child of Abraham. Like I said, we were buried with him through baptisms, talking about Christ, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too, we too, just like the Jews who are circumcised, we too might walk in newness of life. That circumcision was to represent that newness of life. Paul says later in Romans 11, you will say branches were broken off so that I may be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief, for their lack of faith. But you stand by your faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. The whole cutting away and the grafting in, what we see is there is a need for cleansing of the human heart, not just a cleansing of the flesh. We read on in verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. The whole idea of baptism is in the new covenant under Christ, under the cross, it is an outward sign of our inward change. We saw this in Titus chapter 3 last week. He saved us, not by works, which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. I said this then, I'll say it again. Baptism is a sign, an outward sign, of the washing and regeneration and renewing the Holy Spirit does inside us. God has always been more concerned with the purification of your heart than the condition of your physical body. Even in the law, back in Deuteronomy 10, he said, circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. He actually says it twice in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 30, he says, moreover, Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your seed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. Later in Jeremiah 4, he says, circumcise yourselves to Yahweh and remove the foreskins of your heart. When our faith is in Christ and it is in the fullness and the completion of who Christ is, then our joy Our faith connects us to that joy, and it's like two ends of copper wire. And one of those ends is tied to some big power source. And if you've ever messed with electricity, you know if you touch that other tip, what happens? Ouch. Bang. (laughs) If you're my dad, who is an electrician, trip to the emergency room. It is something that shocks you, that overwhelms you, that changes your life forever. Because like that wire is like our faith, it connected you. And boom, something happened inside of you. When your faith connects you to Christ, the joy that you receive is overwhelming. When we understand who Christ is, the miracle that Christ is and was as he walked the earth... And when we're truly satisfied in him and we're made complete, that is a powerful joy. It's a joy no one can take. No one can smudge it up. It's yours and it's from Christ if your faith is in Christ. We go on verse 13, it says, And you, being dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him, having graciously forgiven us all our transgressions. And you being dead, you have nothing to offer if you're dead, right? Maybe if somebody was a coroner, they could get something out of your body, a little 
gross police drama joke. I've been watching a lot of detectives. I've been under quarantine all week, okay? So some of the illustrations come from the TV shows that I've been watching. There's nothing a dead person can do, right? They've ceased moving. There's nowhere they're going to go. Now, again, if you have your Bible, real quick, turn to John chapter 11, the Gospel of John. If you're familiar with the Gospels, you know this is the raising of Lazarus. I actually preached uh, out of this text at my grandma's funeral back in January. And my uncle Lloyd came up to me after the service and said, Jeffrey, I know you're Pentecostal, but when you started talking about Lazarus, I thought you were going to try and raise her from the dead. <laughs> She's in her 90s, Uncle Lloyd. I'm not touching that. Okay? <laughs> we're not doing that. But we're going to begin reading in verse 41. So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the crowd standing around, I said this so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. I want to tell you something this morning. Lazarus was dead. He could not hear his friend if he was just a man. Doesn't matter how much faith he had. He's not going to hear him. When he shouts, Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. It was the voice of God that came forward that Lazarus heard. And from that point, life came back into a mortal body. And Lazarus decided he had no choice in the matter. It's time to get up. But the truth is, when we hear the voice of God, we do actually have a choice. Lazarus knew what to do. But you can hear, come forth, and you could stay where you are. Stay dead, because the grave clothes are, are so comfortable. Lazarus could have just rolled over and died again. No, thank you, Jesus. I'm good where I'm at. Can you imagine that? But how many people do it every day? How many people hear the, the, the voice of God calling to them and they say, ah, oh, but these grave clothes smell so nice. Church, it is by God's grace we hear the gospel each week. It is by his grace you have the ability to share that call with those in your life. And God is calling out to those who are dead in their transgressions. Come forth. And people refuse it because the grave bed is so much more comfortable. Christ calls to us. And to answer, all we have to do is have belief, have faith. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, Paul says, In him you also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who was given as a pledge of our inheritance. In him, when you heard those words come forth, you believed. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Paul says in Ephesians 2, he goes on 1 Corinthians 2, 14, but a natural man does not accept the depths of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually examined. But when the voice of God calls to us, we can walk out of the death of sin, the shame of sin, the rebellion we have been in since the beginning. We can hear his call or we can ignore it and remain lifeless. We can say, no, thank you. 
Where's the snooze button on this thing? I'll do it later, right? How many of you have ever heard that? I know I need to get my life, my life right with Jesus, but not right now. And how many of our sins are offered to be forgiven? All of them. All of them. Man's need for forgiveness is throughout Scripture. God is very clear. We needed a Redeemer. We needed someone who would be able to wash clean this body of sin that separates us from him. Ephesians 1, 7, Paul says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgression, according to the riches of his grace. Psalm 32, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Isaiah 1, 18, God says, Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be wool. The problem is, so many times, we want nothing more than to continue in our sin. But God wants nothing more than to wash that sin away and free us from it. And until then, in fa- until in faith we accept his grace and are redeemed, we remain under that cruel master that is sin. The Old Testament law, by the way, was enough to cover our sin, to cover our shame, but it would never redeem us or truly make us right. So Christ goes further than the law ever could. That's what Paul says in verse 14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he also has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Do you understand when Jesus said those words, it is finished, it's the Greek word tetelestai, And that was written on receipts when the debt had been paid. In essence, what he's saying is everything has been paid in full. It's not your debt. I covered it. It's not your debt. He covered it. That's what he's saying. Your sins were paid for on the cross. That decree that, that was against us, the accusations that were against us, that which was hostile towards us, the barbs and the arrows of the devil were aimed at us based on our sin. But what happens to those arrows? In addition to all having taken up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. You see, when... You are saved. The enemy's accusations hold no water. That's what Satan means, by the way. In the Old Testament, he's called the Satan, the accuser. His accusations don't touch us anymore because of our faith. Because in our faith, we've raised up a shield. Christ has paid that debt in full. The weight of that debt has been taken off our shoulders. Christ took it upon himself at the cross. And under the weight of all the world's sins, he said, it is finished. Paid in full. It's done. No one, church, no one knows the weight of the sin and shame that one bears except those who've been set free from it who've had that taken off of themselves. And when the enemy comes around and people want to taunt you and remind you of the the life you used to live, it's not you anymore. That debt was paid. We can burn the mortgage to that house. I don't live there anymore. He canceled my debt. He took the payment. And the enemy can be hostile. He can gnash his teeth. He can throw a fit. But it's been all taken out of the way. When the nails were driven into our Savior's hands on the cross, our sins were placed upon him, and that weight was lifted. It's done. It's over. 
the devil wants to throw darts, he has to take it up with our attorney. That's what scripture tells us. Job, looking ahead towards Christ, he said, even now, behold, my witness is in heaven and my advocate or my attorney is on high. Now, Job probably didn't understand fully what he was saying because Job in faith was looking ahead towards Christ. He saw in faith what was coming down the pipeline, what's offered to you and what's offered to me. 1 John 2 makes this very clear. He says, little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. We have our attorney with the Father who is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus is a good attorney. But you know what he does to the devil? Paul tells us very clearly. He not only can no longer touch you, the devil is now going to get his nose rubbed in it. You ever think about that? You wonder why the devil hates Christians so much? Because he hates that we exist entirely. We are a constant reminder of his failure. And Jesus does this. It says, Paul says, having disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them in him. The imagery is that of a Roman general who has defeated his enemy and now parades him through town. Look at this dead dog. Look at this thing that you have won. You've beaten this through faith. He's not going to touch you anymore. He's no longer a threat. He's there for you to scorn and to mock. He's defeated. And Jesus parades him around town and says, you've got the victory over this. You ever read the screw screw tape letters? Whenever the, the patient finally dies, oh, but he saw how weak and how small you really were, didn't he? They're no threat. They're conquered, they're defeated, they're done in our faith through Christ. When we understand in Christ our enemies are defeated, it's by our faith they are shamed. Do you understand that? There's similar wording in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 and 16. And in that case, in that allusion that Paul uses, we are walking in the parade with him. We are walking victoriously with him. One reason, I I really believe this, one reason the devil hates Christians, I'll say it again, is they represent his failure, his lack of total victory. Your faith embarrasses the devil. It shows that he's not sovereign. He is not like the most high, like he wanted to be, like he thinks he deserves to be. And his greatest loss, you are a reminder that his greatest loss is coming down the pipeline. Church, the cross spells doom for our enemy. Hebrews 2.14 says, Therefore, since the children are sh- share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death that is the devil. I'll say this, and I'm going to begin to wrap things up. I've talked the past few weeks about baptism. If you mentioned it a couple of times in passing. But something you may not understand about baptism. Baptism is an act of spiritual warfare. What you are doing when you're baptized is you're saying, I have chosen a side. And it, yes, it's an outward expression of an inward change. That's absolutely true. But it's an outward expression to not just the physical world, but the spiritual world. I've put my faith in Christ. My shield is up. I've been risen with Christ. My sins are gone. You can't touch me anymore, devil. You're letting everybody and everything know You've picked the winning side. And from that, I hope 
you get great joy. Because our faith connects us to the joy offered us in Christ. It's the joy of a winner. It's the joy of the victor. I'm going to move to close. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. and I'll say it one more time. Our faith connects us to the joy offered in Christ. So many have weak joy because they have weak faith. Or they have no joy because they have misdirected faith. Faith in their version of Jesus, faith in themselves, faith in someone or something, and they've been let down. Do you have faith that completely and totally resides in Jesus Christ this morning? I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to sing one more song. And when we're done, I'll close us in a word of prayer. But as we sing, I want to challenge you. Find a place to pray. Lord, strengthen my faith today. And in doing that, ask him to strengthen your joy. Because we are not on the losing team. In faith in Christ, we have victory. Amen.